0: Between the wisdom passed down by ancient healing traditions anecdotal experience and modern clinical trials one thing is clear mushrooms are medicinal powerhouses and i finally found a brand a product a company that i feel really aligns with all of my research and understanding when it comes to the medicinal properties of mushrooms and that is alchemy mushrooms they grow their mushrooms in california on organic mushroom farms they keep the whole mushroom in their supplements and they actually blend mycelium and fruit body in their mushroom powders and capsules to give you the best of both worlds. You can learn more at Alchemy Mushrooms, that's A-L-C-H-E-M-I, alchemymushrooms.com. Use the discount code Hour for 20% off your order, alchemy with an I, mushrooms.com. Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we're graced by the presence of woodland spirit Fergus Drennan, also known as Fergus the Forager. Fergus has been gathering and learning about wild plants, seaweeds, and fungi for over 40 years. His journey began on Wimbledon Common at only three years old, collecting dandelions for the family's pet tortoise since those early days and through much creative and experimental exploration he has continued his foraging practice not only as a means to understand and to discover the practical relevance that foraging has in the modern developed world but also in terms of what it means to be an environmentally conscious human in relation to the natural world can foraging ever be considered a truly sustainable practice and if so how is a question that always orchestrates his foraging activity. So too does a pursuit of foraging's playful and creative possibilities. Truth be told, Fergus just loves being outside, admiring nature as part of nature, living in touch with her reassuring seasonal cycles, awake to her sensuality, her surprises, opportunities, and endless gifts in pursuit of the good life. Fergus, thank you so much for joining us on Mushroom Hour.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Darren. Uh, I've been looking forward to it for a long time.
0: Well, so have I. I'm a huge fan of your work, a huge fan of your videos. And like we always do, you know, let's start off with how Fergus became the forager. I mean, we're talking about decades and decades of experience. Was this, you know, from three years old, it started and you never stopped? Or how did this journey progress to where you are today?
1: Um, I think it starts with... um, you know, having a mother gave me a, a name that lent itself to some nice alliteration uh, <laughs> later <laughs> on. Um, I've listened to so many of your episodes and it's not always the case, but a lot of people talk about, you know, having a an important elder, a family member or someone that they kind of go out with. And, uh, and when I think back to my own life, that's maybe not in a stricter sense that we kind of lived in the country and you know my mother was i'm really kind of interested in kind of the outside but as you mentioned in the introduction i was taught by the best teacher the tortoise tortoise (laughs) um and yeah (laughs) i i lived in central london and wimbledon and most people know about wimbledon tennis um that's kind of london but a vast green area there is wimbledon common and i would go with my mother and as a three-year-old, you know, a, a green space like that in London, that's the whole world. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, wow. Right. Um, I I, got, I kind of walked from the house. Yeah, sure. I was aware it was kind of quite concrete kind of area. But once I got out on the common, it's this vast kind of country, this other place, you know, I would spend hours like watching my, my tortoise eat the foods that you like to eat with absolute rapt at- attention. You know, and one of the things he loved the most was dandelions, like that, like kind of iconic weed for most people. And he would eat this with such relish, like it was the food of the gods. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but the funny thing is, as a kind of three, three, four-year-old, it took me a couple of years before I plucked up the courage to eat some myself. You know, I I thought it was a kind of slightly naughty, subversive thing to do because hey, this was food for the tortoise, not not for people. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I had a nibble and to my crushing disappointment, it wasn't the food of the gods. It was the food of tortoises. (laughs) But you know, it's only much, much later when I came to realize that, you know, the things I was tasting there, motivated by the fact of knowing that these plants are so nutritious and dandelions in particular, that's just a case of, you know, balancing out any kind of bitterness with with spices with fats and uh, you know these things, get creative
0: yeah, and I'm sure that was pretty influential. that experience in the common space, especially being in tune, you know making friends with a non human uh, seems to broaden people's perspectives. I'm sure that impacted how you navigated through urban london and and modernity
1: well you know it, it's it's saying when, when you say, say that that the immediate Impression that came to me was, you know, as as a kind of three, four-year-old, when you like experience that sense of love and connection for an animal, to a certain extent, there isn't a distinction between you and that animal, mm. and I guess you navigate the world at that time without that sense of separation. And it's only kind of, I mean, I've thought of this over the over the years, but it's it's you've kind of prompted this thought now. Is you know, it is when, once we. have get to that point of self consciousness where we realize that hey hey i'm me and hey that's the tortoise <laughs> over there that we're different entities that's i think there's a, a sense with with foraging is almost trying to return to that sense of deep and absolute radical fundamental connection on some level you know
0: yeah that brings up images of the ecological Self to me, that concept that the self—where does that border end? And yeah, maybe foraging is trying to return to that more nescient state where you were just felt like you were part of everything. The self was the tortoise and the dandelions and the Wimbledon commons. You feel more held by nature because you're because you're part of nature. Well, classic hero's journey—you know, you start out with the status quo, and then you have to meet a supernatural mentor. And in your case. It was a tortoise and so then as you progressed along you know did you kind of continue on that path or did like most of us you know even if you had some natural connection early in life it kind of gets lost as you enter schooling and all that so then how did you either reconnect with this or did that thread carry through most of your adolescent into your adult life
1: i think that thread carried through because yeah, it, you know, I think I, I learned from some of the best foragers out there, you know, and that's the animals and the insects themselves. And I, I remember when I was about five and uh, I decided I had this this I Spy book. I don't know if you have those in, 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 in the States, but they're, they're books for children. And, that was one of my
0: favorite books growing up.
1: Yeah, there's some really good ones. You have I Spy insects or you have I Spy at the seashore or whatever, you know, and I had an I Spy insect one and... Uh, and I remember putting a, a cloth underneath this tree in the a garden. It was a, a short, a small kind of Leylandii tree, or something like that. And I shook it, and like all these ladybirds came out. And it's like, hey, <laughs> hey, this this tree is not just tree. It's it's ladybirds, and like ladybirds, a tree. What? Wow, this is <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> you know, I just expanding. The concept of of what something is, you know, in a sense that like a ladybird isn't a ladybird without the tree. The tree isn't a tree without the ladybird. and, And it applies to all sorts of things, you know. So I've always been fascinated by kind of wildlife and insects in particular. And I kind of between the ages of seven and kind of 11, I was just enthralled with the whole realm of butterflies and moths and the caterpillars, you know. That you would find on food plants so i would go out and and get those and uh and like one thing that strikes me i used to have this book it's a very basic guide to uh butterflies and moths and i remember it had an illustration of a a nettle and on there it had some of the 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 favorite caterpillars i I like to collect which were the tortoiseshell and the peacock in particular which is a peacock caterpillar by the way it's like It's like a universe in itself it's black with all these little white dots it's like stars you know i mean they're so kind of transfixing and and amazing so yeah in 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 that book it it said sometimes country folk they like to make a soup out of nettles you know it's like hey (laughs) like these amazing creatures that are eating these plants like hey and humans can eat them humans can eat them you know And a funny thing happened, and this is going to make me sound like some kind of strange um, silence of the lambs, kind of psycho, Uh, (laughs) but I used to, I used to, (laughs) well, hopefully not at seven. Yeah. Yeah. But I, because once you start by catching butterflies and moths in, in, in nets to identify them and then, and then you're finding the caterpillars and ultimately like then you want to find the eggs, it gets more and more refined. And so I'd, I'd bring the plants back home and I'd, Watch the caterpillar um, hatch from the egg and go through its whole cycle of growth, and then and then you know, it'd it crawl somewhere into the box that I had them in and but I would collect these cocoons and I would glue them to like a a branch and I'd stick in a in a flower pot and I would watch them go, and peacocks in particular go through that whole amazing process of of metamorphosis to the point where I'd sometimes if I was very lucky, I'd see that magical moment when the the chrysalis, the cocoon, would break and the butterfly would be coming out. And it's like, Whoa You know, this this caterpillar has become this beautiful creature and and I know although I never thought of this consciously to be honest, never thought of it consciously, but it's like Okay, if we're eating these foods, like to what extent can they transform our our own health, our own being? You know, I think that really sat Mm, with me in a real subconscious way. I really think so.
0: Yeah, powerful symbol of transformation. Like you said, maybe not consciously, but maybe it was imparting messages of transformation to you. Maybe it was actually transforming you by the process of watching the transformation. I mean, there's a lot of metaphysical interaction going on here yeah well that, i mean and i'm always impressed by people too from that young and age who are engaging in that level of observation and interest in nature it's so important and something i think we become so disconnected from so i'm always impressed by people that had that from very early that impetus to to connect with nature so then you know when did you really start to explore foraging because you're starting to get some inklings of transformation potentials and you're learning from the tortoise and the caterpillars but when did you start properly going out and seeing wild food as as really something to uh to commit to or pursue seriously
1: yeah you know I, I i wish my my memory was so accurate that i could pinpoint one moment but <laughs> yeah, you know, what what I. I can really remember is that back in 1990 i trained for two years to be a chef this was partly because i was kind of kicking around doing nothing and i was i was still i was 19 i was still at home and my mother was saying like what do you want to do for the rest of your life and like you know i was just kind of still at the in the last throes of kind of adolescent angst and i'd be like well i just want to be a tramp and just sit on a bench all day <laughs> and <laughs> you know seriously Not I, a I, bad I career path. Think that's a worthy Not thing a but anyway so this this thing came through the door about this this college and uh, i could train to be a chef and uh, but it was already two weeks in and i and i said well like, there's no point in calling these these people because the course has already started but i i thought i'd just put her out of her misery by just calling them and they said hey no problem you can still come, you know? I was like, oh no. Oh, no. You know, <laughs> oh, no." But uh, actually, to tell you the truth, it was a good thing, although I never really worked as a chef in a kind of formal way, apart from six months. I think what it has left me with is abiding confidence to really play with plants and fungi and seaweeds and just think in, in terms of the full range of possibilities that you can get when you really notice and... Are aware of the different textures and flavors and you know combinations of things yeah so that that's was actually very useful and i would just say that it was around that time and here's a really weird thing and i thought i'm going on that i'm going on the mushroom hour maybe i shouldn't confess this but there was about that time right i was at my mother's and she was watching a program and it was about people foraging mushrooms, right? And I'd never foraged mushrooms. I'd explored a few plants, and particularly ones, as I said, that the caterpillars like, like like nettles and and, um, garlic mustard. But there were those people foraging mushrooms. And it's so funny, right? I had this really negative reaction. It was like, okay, so they were ducking and diving, like going under leaves and, and under branches and getting some mushrooms, getting really excited. And like, mushrooms, like it wasn't part of my world. Like plants I could understand, seaweeds I could understand because hey you can splash around in the sea and it's it's all fun and but mushrooms come on (laughs) what's this and I reacted in a really angry way I was like hey yeah what what are these stupid people doing (laughs) what are they doing (laughs) I'm almost real ashamed that this but my and this is partly to show you how my transformation couldn't be more great from this kind of low point And it was about a year after this program where I'd I'd started training as a chef. And I was just out for a walk in the woods. And it just happened to be one of the most epic years for Belita Sedulis, Penny Buns, Porcini. And uh, despite my reluctance, they were like all over the paths. You know, this doesn't normally happen. No choice. Yes. It's like, oh, well, you know that's what these kind of, these kind of people were doing. Like they were ducking and diving under the trees, but hey, look, they're all over the path. Like they can't be ignored. I, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take one and I took it home and I cooked it. And, uh, that was it. There's no, there's no gag back. I was won over by the the flavor. And of course in subsequent years, like for me, okay, everything has its inherent flavor, but but what actually goes to make up the flavor is far more complex. It's the story. It's the journey. It's the adventure, you know? So when I think over the years, all the fun I've had foraging, that really goes in in into that. And uh, I guess the adventure there was like I overcame my stupidity. <laughs> yeah,
0: It's that old saying, don't knock it, don't knock it until you try it. And that seems like yeah. a very seminal moment. I know you said this all kind of blends together, but man, you picked out a beautiful story to illustrate that transformation for you, how you fell in love with mushrooms, how that was added to kind of this growing foraging and maybe playing with food practice. And that was something you brought up. You just referenced there that I think is so interesting. You know, what is the importance for you in play in foraging? And I know for some of us, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but for some of us weekend warriors like myself who really go foraging kind of on the weekend, go out to the woods you know, it has play and it has therapeutic benefits and all those things. But sometimes you kind of get overridden by this urgency to say, okay, I only have a limited amount of time. I want a certain amount of mushrooms. And it's almost like this feverish hunt for what you can find, you know, while you have this this limited time. Uh, And sometimes I feel like I'm not being as playful or even as observant of other things. You kind of put the blinders on, just go, go, go. So for you, how important is it to... Find play and keep that at the center of your relationship, really with nature. It sounds like from a young age, but especially with with foraging.
1: That's an interesting one, isn't it? I I think there's a intimate connection between both play and creativity, and uh, yeah, I've never really thought about this before, but I just thought about it just now. Is uh, yeah, so you know if you're if you're kind of stressed and then you start to breathe in a kind of more shallow way. And then, you know, when you're not stressed, playful perhaps and having fun, you're breathing kind of more deeply. But there's this sense in which, okay, let's say I'm feeling stressed now and I'm breathing in a shallow way, but I, I think I take conscious control of that. And I think, okay, hey, I'm just going to breathe more deeply. And immediately I start to feel calmer, you know, and I wonder if there's a similar thing that goes on with, with play and creativity. So when I think about it, like, It's a massive skill set that's required in foraging. Like first of all, you've got to be able to identify things, but then to get the most of it, the most out of it, like how do you work with these plants? And that's where creativity comes in. So I think if you could just be more playful and try to do it consciously, even if you're not feeling it, you know, and often, often that comes from just noticing like the opportunities That lend themselves to messing around and laughing and and playing games and doing silly things but yeah if you can be consciously playful i think you're you're going to be more creative and i think if you're more creative you're just naturally going to be more playful i think there's a kind of interplay a reciprocal dialogue back and forth with those things
0: I really like that idea and that's hugely empowering just in that analog of, yeah, breathing. I think so many people know that power of deep breathing, slowing down, catching your breath. But to think either because it's having that effect, but to think you could do the same with play, you could tap into like, whoa, I'm getting way too serious. Let me just be playful and goofy for a minute and see what that unlocks or how that changes thing. And I love that idea about creativity because I know that's something that, God is talked about with every self-help guru, everything. So how do you be more creative? How do you be more creative? And what if it's as simple as encouraging yourself or, or consciously making a choice to be more playful and the creativity will come from that. And I mean, you've got playfulness and creativity, it seems like in, you know, heaps and heaps and a huge abundance with what I'm seeing, what you're doing, both in the kitchen and outside of the kitchen. So, you know, that scope of that conversation is massive in a podcast series all of its own. You know, Fergus the Forager's recipes for every different kind of mushroom and all the other uses. But if you can, maybe highlight something, you know, in something recent that you stumbled upon, a novel use in the kitchen of a certain mushroom. And because I watch so much of your work, I can think of a million things, so I know it'll be hard to choose. And then maybe something you'd like to do also outside of the kitchen that you've was kind of inspired through one of these bouts of kind of playfulness and creativity?
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah. something I've discovered. Yeah, actually it, it comes back to being kind of playful and uh, observing as well, a really detailed observation. So yeah, I can give you, I can give you three, three brief, brief examples. Like one is, is something that I make a lot, which people always love when I when I get them to to taste them as something which I call bramble stem stars so that's if you get those rapidly growing bramble stems in May and you you take off the 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 young leaves and you take off the spines and you've cut them in cross sections you will discover that they're amazing star shape naturally and you can pickle them you can cook them in in sweetened blackberry juice you can do all sorts of things with them and uh yeah that came about like one time i was walking down just a a kind of pathway in may and uh this bramble kind of was saying hey welcome to the spring as it was grabbing my clothes (laughs) and i was like yeah hey but hey that's enough of a hug now i've got places to go things to do you know And uh, i had a knife and i kind of cut this thing off and uh i walked along for half an hour and i saw it like hanging there hanging on my on my jumper and i saw I saw that it was a star shape and I was like blown away. Whoa, how did I not notice this before? So, you know, that that's one thing I love to work with. And I think another thing I absolutely adore working with is uh, pine pollen. I, I gather a few kilos of this every year. But again, it, it's like really ob- observing. And uh, one novel use that I found for it, you know, apart from using it in ice cream, apart from making what I like to call pine pollen halva, which is like equal quantities of Pine pollen and honey and tahini. I've been making a lot of botanical Turkish delights. So that's where you forget the roses because that for me, that's a gross flavor inside a Turkish delight. But if you switch in there, other botanicals, bit dandelion, bit mugwort, bit hawthorn blossom, like traditionally, these days, a lot of them are made with um, gelatine, but traditionally, like cornflowers is used. And then cornflowers is used on the outside to stop them sticking together. But when I realized this and I'm feeling like the qualities of pine pollen, I'm thinking, hey, I can use these to, you know, coat the outside of my botanical Turkish delights. And it's just another a way to showcase pine pollen. One more example. I've gone from like n- having no examples to like lots of, one more example. This is, is what I
0: was hoping. I was hoping that spark would go off. One, yeah. one
1: more example I really love. And I think if I'm remembered for anything, it probably engraved on my, Tombstone will be, if I decide to go that way, will be the originator of chocolate jelly ear mushrooms. (laughs) I mean, I love jelly ears. It's a a mushroom that grows on elder and it really lends itself to incorporating other flavors because it doesn't have a huge amount of flavor. So you can put it in soups and stews and it takes on that flavor, but also you can put it in sweet things. So years ago, I was running a course and it was for kids you know sometimes being playful doesn't work so i went into the woods with this group of kids right and yeah it was that time of the year it was kind of late in the season when you can find a huge like dead elder lying on the ground and it can be covered in good quality fresh jelly ears and i I kind of ran in with them like all excited because i was genuinely excited because I love to see this. I right. never get sick of, I never get sick. Of, I'm like a dog, like, hey, I've seen those a thousand times before, but this is the best jelly you've ever seen. <laughs> <I'm> like... <laughs> but anyway, so there was loads of them. And I went in and I started eating them like straight away. Because it's one of those ones. That you <laughs> just raw, raw off the elder. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's one of these ones. It doesn't go for like, all fungi, obviously, but it's one that's pretty benign and pretty good, just raw, you know. And uh, rather than them being inspired and delighted, like they were recoiling in horror, you know. <laughs> and you know if you lose a group at the beginning that's it it's hard to recover but I was tough, do- yeah i was doing a course for kids a couple of weeks later i thought you know what it's it's all about the delivery so and you know you say what what inspires you but it's not just the botanicals itself but it, it's the challenge and it's other people so it's like okay this group of kids they didn't react well but how can i make this go well so i had a little kind of creative thought and i thought you know what if i if i dry them and i rehydrate half in orange juice and half in ribena do you know ribena it's like um a black currant cordial concentrate and then and then what if i then freeze them and then i dip them in chocolate because it's a lot easier to handle when they come out of the freezer dark chocolate and so i did this and i stood outside the woods with this group of kids and i said look we're gonna we're gonna look at some fungi and uh It's an amazing fungi because they're they're chocolate fungi the chocolate fungi can you believe it it just so happens i've got some in this box here you know and i did them really well so they're they're dipped in the melted chocolate and then you with a pin and you stick them on a a, like a cork notice board or something and then as the chocolate drips off and you wipe the last drip off as you're sticking the next one on you you really get the whole contour of of the mushroom you can really see its ear like shape so i'm saying hey Look at these chocolate mushrooms, and uh, we're going to eat some. Look at the shape, feel the textures, and uh, I'm not going to tell you where they, these are. They, you know, they might be on the ground because some some fungi like to hang out on the ground, and could be in a tree. You know, some like it up there. You know. And we went into this wood, and it couldn't have been more different than like the two weeks before. They were they were finding them quickly. They were they were just jumping for joy. Is this it? Is this it? You know, it's like hey, yeah, that's it. We found jelly and mushrooms, you know? Yeah. So sometimes a bit of creativity and learning both from the qualities of the plants and fungi themselves and the the people that you're trying to introduce these things to, it can can really work well.
0: And there's this kind of triumvirate of creativity, learning and play that I see so much in your work. And I think they all feed into each other. And I'm also just picking up bits and pieces, including, I love that aspect you threw in there of, of challenge. And it's funny. I think some of that is part of creativity as well. Either you're limited in what's at your disposal, or yeah, you have someone to please a a tough crowd, like a group of kids that you're trying to get interested and it kind of inspires and gets something going. (laughs) Like you said, if you lose them at the beginning, they're going to be checked out on you. And and talk about that too. I mean, you're highlighting some of these creative uses in the kitchen, you know, and this, to me, as someone who's not great in the kitchen, you know, the extent of my use of wild foods is usually slice it up uh, pretty finely and put it into a a frying pan. You know, so how did you develop those skills? Can we credit this to those early years working as a chef? Or is this hard won over decades of experimentation? You know, how did you develop this, these skills of working with wild foods in the kitchen?
1: hmm do you know i i would say the same i don't claim to be a particularly good chef or cook well i'm not a am not a chef but i'd say i do have an awareness of just the possibilities of things and maybe that's just an inherent skill i don't know i think it's something that can be developed yeah i, I this is this is what it is right i think over the years you come to learn about more and more wild food and then someone would say to me, like about a particular plant, is that edible? And there was a time when they might be pointing out something I hadn't used very much, right? And I'd say, ah, well, yeah, no, it's not, it's not very good, you know, it's, it's it's a bit bitter or it's a little bit tough, you know, or or I'd just say, hey, no, uh, not really. But then I thought, you know, I've got to I've got to stop saying this. I've got to knock this on its head because I'm going to change that around. I'm going to say. Okay, this plant here is incredibly edible. You know, it's it's wonderful. So I say this to people, <laughs> but I, I just I haven't yet worked out how. <laughs> you know, but I think with enough patience and persistence, you can you can really find out. A, a good example of this, and very occasionally, and I don't say this out of kind of any sense of my own kind of importance or kind of arrogance in knowing what to do, but I. I'm rarely inspired by other foragers simply because I'm so busy creating my own things. And and, because I like to learn through mistakes as well, that's another key thing. So I don't want to look something up that someone else is doing and then do it. I'd rather kind of work out a process and discover a whole lot of different things in the process. But there is someone that I do occasionally look at and more the fact that I enjoy the fact that he exists. Just the fact that people are existing and doing various things is enough for me, right? But I'm I'm talking about Pascal Bauder. Do you know Pascal Bauder? Big, yes, big into I fermentation, mean, big yes. into... And I remember seeing, and this is an example, of, I, I'm giving this as an example of a plant I used to ignore all the time. And so in, in one of his videos, one of his books, he was working with like plantain, like great plantain. And he said, you know, the secret is, he said like, Treat it like a seaweed, like so boil it for four minutes in like, you know, heavily salted water. Anyway, he had this then served like wilted kind of greens or boiled greens on a, on a bit of slate with some, some smoked salmon with some nice dressing that he'd made. And I didn't actually go on to make that, but I was just so inspired by thinking, you know what, I've just ignored this all the time. And now someone's showing me you can actually make something delicious. I've gone on and done my own things with, with this plant, which are pretty funky, uh, which I'm pretty pleased with. <laughs> uh, in fact, pr- pretty recently, and I have to say this because it's so funny, because there's actually, I, I spent seven hours in a kitchen uh, a couple of months ago, filming for a program, a slightly gimmicky program, where celebrities had to carry all the waste that they generated for, for, for a week. And anyway, they got me to do a three-course plant-based meal in the in this kind of pub. And one of the things that I did, because they wanted me to to look at insects as well, and they wanted me to use put crickets on the menu, and I was a bit reluctant because it was a bit of a gimmicky thing. And hey, I wasn't going to go out with a net and get some crickets. But you know, but I thought it's quite a challenging ingredient like insects for people, even though you know there's lots of talk of insects being the future to like the. The future of like right. high protein food source rather than kind of meat you know but i thought i've got to disguise it in some way and so backtrack about a year before i was cooking some great plantain leaves and if you don't know great plantain about the size of your hand an average adult's hand kind of rounded but they have these kind of parallel kind of curving veins at the back so quite veiny but if you find a big leaf in long grass it will have a stem that's like can be up to like 30 centimeters long so what i was doing because these cook really well as a green like kale or something i was about to cook them and i was like snapping them up at the top and dragging all these veins out i must say this is a very satisfying thing to do even if you don't want to eat the plant because as, right. as the veins go they go through the stem and then they kind of they fan out like along like the main veins in the back of the leaf and all these the, the vascular bundles i guess what you would call them like the the fibrous part of the vein inside it it pulls out of the leaf and it's very satisfying um it's just uh, such a good thing to do anyway i had all these um veins and I, I put them in in little bundles and i was just about to chuck them in the compost and then i saw that someone had a pan of hot oil that was left on the on the cooker and i thought hey wait a minute why don't i just deep fry these because they're tough, but they're not quite tough enough to make some cordage or something. So I kind of deep fry them. And I deep fried them. And they, were, they just became these wonderful, crispy little nests, which I then salted. Anyway, so for this program, as sort of one of the things I cooked, I made these, these vein nests with like crickets hidden in them.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, it was kind of fun thing. Wow. But what I really loved about that is... There was a there's another chef like in the UK called Fergus Henderson, and he wrote this book years ago called Nose to Tail. And he's, he's particularly interested in the meat. So it was that whole concept, which is like no news to, you know, traditional cultures all around the world. But maybe in a modern context, it's more a news story or of interest that, hey, you can actually use the whole of this animal. You don't have to waste anything. You could do nose to tail foraging, even as a vegetarian, but you you apply it to plants, you know. So when you can use the the, the veins, as well as like so many other aspects of plants, and when these parts would often be discarded, I, I find that really exciting, particularly if you can make something really, really tasty out of it.
0: And you could say the same thing for those novel uses of mushrooms like jelly ear that most of us think of as edible but forgettable. I mean, all of that goes into that concept of really using everything of all the forage goods you find. And I love that story of inspiration, too. For me, that's the best kind of inspiration. Where you see Pascal Boudoir, I'm probably butchering his name, uh, you see him (laughs) using an ingredient, and it kind of keys you into that ingredient. But you don't try to mimic what he did or do it, but change one element. You take it, sit with it, and find your own path with it. Yeah, Uh,
1: Exactly. It's 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 like a, a, it's a Roger, Roger Bannister uh, moment, you know, where the, the four minute mile thing. It's like, hey, this is impossible. Hey, this guy's just done it. Hey, it is possible. <laughs> and then you know, it, and then it suddenly goes... everybody can do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I just want to say back to the jelly, here, because probably it's not coming across in this conversation, but I, I'm just feeling it myself. I think I'm so aware that I have such a sweet tooth. And I often talk about candying things and blah, blah, blah. I just want to say a really, <laughs> yeah. lo- a really lovely use of jelly ear is if you get really good ones and you hold them between your thumb and your index finger and you rub them together, the gel inside will kind of break down a little bit. So the two bits of skin that, of either side will be like moving over themselves. And then if you make a little hole in it, you can pipe in all sorts of things like herby cheese, Uh, and and things, and then you can tempura them and deep fry them. Ah, it's great. So you don't have to go, this is the thing, with with many, many wild plants, you know, you can go sweet, you can go savory, and you can go everywhere in between, and uh, that's exciting too.
0: I have a sweet tooth as well, so I always appreciate the candied, you know, birch polypore, I think you called it uh, marshmallows. Yeah, I, I love some of the stuff that you do on the sweet side of the spectrum. And, you know, just in that example again, what comes through is this observation, is seeing something for the properties that it actually has and letting that guide how you treat it. That's something I'm trying to incorporate more. I mean, you could say in everything, but it feels like when it comes to wild food preparation or you know, even helping you identify is really taking stock of the actual properties it has before you get lost in trying to ascribe something else to it or, you know, falling back on some other reference point is to really observe yeah. it for yeah, yourself completely. Kind of be, Yeah. see yeah, what the exactly. properties
1: are. Exactly what you're saying is observe it with, with, without any preconceived baggage. So, because for most people, hey, there's these tough veins in a plant. I got to drag them out and throw them away. But it's like, hey, wait a minute. If I stop thinking that this is just a waste product, there could be something amazing here. But you have to have the ability to kind of let put that aside, you know. Maybe it is a waste product. Uh, maybe it's just good for the compost. But that might come later. But first of all, let's put that aside. And I think this has many lessons. I think, you know, there are so many lessons in foraging that can just be applied to life generally. And that's kind of one of them is uh, let go of your preconceptions and, uh, and uh, be able to see what's actually there, you know.
0: Yeah. I mean, this idea of observation, play, creativity, these are things that could apply in every aspect of life. And another part of this that might be overarching is for you, how does foraging show up as a subversive act? Because specifically mushrooms are often seen, I don't know what it is about them, just as an organism, they are kind of subversive. They are kind of under the radar. Maybe that's because most (laughs) of their actual vegetative body is under the ground. But you know, this act of wild foraging, it's something I've talked with or talked about with a few guests, this idea that going out into nature, getting your own food, having your own deep relationship on kind of every sensory level is somehow subversive. How does that show up for you in in your practice? Because you brought up that concept before the show, and I think it's a really interesting one.
1: Well, something you've you've just kind of brought to my mind, which is quite funny, just because of what you just said was that fungi themselves uh, are Uh, somewhat subversive and i guess if we ingest subversive foods we become subversive but what i was thinking there (laughs) was that um, like the caterpillar and the butterfly Uh, yeah yeah but a a couple of weeks ago i was running a, a course for and it's very unusual for me it was for 15 and 16 year old boys with a with a friend of mine and at the end of it and we did so many things, but at the end we went through this woodland, which I was reluctant to go to because I had been there for years. And I said, well, you know, Chris, I just don't think this is a particularly good wood for, for mushrooms. I've only been through it once, but yeah, I just it, yeah, it doesn't uh, ring my bell in, in terms of being a good place. And we're, we're, <laughs> we're walking through it, right? And sure enough, I hadn't been there for a few years. And there were quite a lot of beech trees, but they were young. And what we noticed, they were all planted in like by like a military precision in like these roads. And and I said, Chris, look, I'd never really noticed how, how bad this was in terms of, hey, maybe like in 30, 50 years, this would be great for mushrooms. But now they're not. And Chris turned around and he said to me, and I'm not going to swear, but <laughs> he said, yeah, probably a mushroom spores were floating through the air. And they saw this woodland with all these, you know, these measured out aligned trees and they said, for F's sake, you call this wild? No way. Hey, I'm not going to sporulate or I'm, I'm not going to germinate germinate here. I'm off. I'm off. I'm out of here.
0: That's the rebellious nature.
1: Yeah. But, um, I've always, maybe it comes from like having been to a, a really horrible boarding school and there, there, there's so many ways, but I've, I've generally not done well. With external sources of authority, you know? So something like foraging, which I think is radically open to everybody, that really appeals to me. Like there's nobody to say, hey, you need to go and study this, you need to get this certificate before you're qualified to go out. Basically, all you need to do is be curious, you need to put in the footwork, you need to pay attention, really notice things. And in, in that sense, it's open to everyone. But I will at this point say that I'm, I'm a massive bookworm. Um, so much so that if you could look around where I am right now, it's su- I'm surprised that the whole room isn't collapsing because of the books. But there's one book that I've there's an author I really got into in a massive way this year. And he's written the two most interesting books I've read and disturbing. And that's Jason Hickel. And he wrote a book on the origins of global inequality called the divide and he wrote another book more recently called less is more and it's kind of looking at the origin of why environmentally and socially culturally we're in, in the predicament that we are and particularly he looks at the uk situation and this goes back i mean you'll see the connection why i think foraging is subversive but he really looks at Going back to kind of medieval times, and he looks how even like during like the, the feudal period and just after that, where peasants or like the commoners had access to the commons, to to the forest, where they basically they had access to all the sources that could nourish their lives: be it food, be it game, be it plants, be it wood, waters for fishing, and this really was a threat to the the kind of nobles and the lords and royalty, the church. And, you know, there's a massive backlash against this. And in the kind of 18th, 19th century, we had like the Enclosures Acts of Parliament, whereby I think it was something like 6% of the land in the UK was enclosed and made private property so that, the likes of peasants like me could not then go on and forage and gather mushrooms or gather plants. So to a certain extent, you know, I, I feel increasingly now that although I'm not overtly a political person, that foraging is in a, in a sense a very political act because it's saying, hey, look, as long as I can show, and I think this is crucially important. But I'm not of the same mindset of those that would enclose and exploit. As long as I'm aware of the, the, the need to tread gently and think more reciprocally, I think I should have a right to go and sustainably gather these these plants, these fungi, to nourish myself and not be dependent on, not be forced into being a consumer for my needs, you know. It's funny, because people often say to me, like, well, yay, yeah, foraging, doesn't it take, yeah, it's, it's, it takes a long time, and it's not really practical, is it? And uh, and then I sometimes say to them, like, do you travel to work? And they say, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I, I go up to London, like, a or further. It's like, yeah, it's a, it's a, I commute, like, an hour every day. It's like, oh, okay, you commute. I'm I'm, sorry, I'm thinking, that's okay, that's two hours. I'm not thinking, I'm like, why are you doing that? It's like, well... I'm commuting to work so I can you know, I've got a job. I've got a good job in London. I say, ah, oh, okay, so what are you doing with that that money? It's like, okay, I'm buying food. Okay. So, so there's music Okay, you're you're commuting that's important foraging time, to get the money to then buy the food. Well, hey, look, you could just go straight to the food. You <laughs> could the food design right out there. It's like it's, it's growing in the woods. It's just, just, just by that path over there. Like You don't even need to commute to get the money, to get the food. Just go and get the food. Not only that, but you don't have to pay your annual subscription to the gym because you're getting exercise and well, this kind of thing. I, I listened to a podcast a couple of years ago by Katie Bowman. Do you know Katie Bowman? She I don't. Yeah, she lives in the US. I think she is an American. But she, she really explores a lot around natural movement or ancestral movement. So this is the full range that we would use our bodies in the past before we became more sedentary. And she was actually giving foraging as an example where people were saying, you know, I don't have time, you know, I've got to commute to work, I've got to do a this, like, you know, I've got to, do, I've got to spend time with the kids. And then she came up with this, this, this lovely concept. I don't know if it was her concept, but she talked about it and she calls it life stacking. And I really love this. And, it, and it's not to think that, okay, you've got a to-do list today. And you've got to do A, B, C, D in this linear order, right? So she gave the, the example of foraging. So, okay, you've got to do your, your grocery shopping, foraging. Like, you've got to spend some time with kids. Okay, go out, go and look, pick some blackberries, spending time with kids. Okay, I need to do some exercise. Okay, go foraging, <laughs> you know, duck under <laughs> that branch, climb that tree. Oh, uh, you know, I need to do some mindfulness. Yeah, I, I better go online and do a, a mindfulness class. Like, tonight. hey, no, let's just take some time when we're picking those blackberries. Just really eat them slowly, you know? So, all of these things done over one hour. Whereas, if you laid them out sequentially, like, okay, there's no time to do that in the day, you know? I really I was say, love most this. Most of them
0: wouldn't get done.
1: I know. I really love this. So, again, that, that becomes foraging is subs- Because, okay, I don't grudge someone teaching mindfulness. I don't grudge someone growing to supply shops, you know, and all these things. It's all very important. But at the same time, we can take back the the power, the control, the inspiration to have those very basic needs of ours met by doing things that are really simple and nourishing and sustainable.
0: And I just love how you put some of these massive concepts into words and kind of tied this all together. Because I think one of the big issues that really as a giant collective, as a species on the planet right now, we're having to wrestle with is this concept of centralized authority. And what do you do with it? How valid is it? How can you possibly integrate that with concepts of like individual human freedom? What if I just want to do my own thing and be left alone? You know, these are huge things that are coming to a head, if you will, like we're going to have to start making decisions about what society is going to look like one way or another. And I see kind of, we've all read and seen movies about the dystopian future of one centralized authority that controls everything, you know, or then you have the completely opposite of almost like a Luddite tribal society, which, hey, sign me up for, uh, but you know, <laughs> what, what is this concept of human organization look like? And, you know, I had a great conversation with Robin Harford, who I'm sure you know there in the UK, yeah. who talked about his political activism in kind of railing against centralized authority and everything. And he thought that eventually his work with plants and foraging was infinitely more successful at empowering people and made more of a political statement than railing against the existing structures that we see are at times very archaic and unwieldy, and we all wonder, you know, why are we doing this? And I found so much of that in what you're saying, is that doing this practice meets all of these different human needs, empowers yourself, makes your life kind of this closed loop system without the need for a lot of those structures and complex systems of authority. You know, We can call it, quote unquote, the system bureaucracy and all that. Because at the end of the day, if you spend your whole life fighting it, then that's what your life is, is fighting that system. It's not doing this other, embodying this other way of organizing or being. Uh, And so I really appreciate you bringing that up. And I just love the way you said that, because I think that's what pulled me into foraging. And that's what really it's for so many people, whether it's subconsciously or very consciously, they know that this is somehow taking some of that power back from a society where we've externalized so much of that political, yeah, material power in terms of food. And, you know, it it really does play an important role in that conversation.
1: Katie Bowman, she refers to that as outsourcing, you know, outsourcing various aspects of your health. We can insource.
0: I I hate to make it sound like foraging is the answer for everything, but I think it's the answer for a lot of things. And I think, you know, it gets to this question of sustainability. It's something I brought up in the introduction, and you talked about it. You know, if you can very prove that you're not going to just tramp through the forest and destroy everything, which most foragers don't. What does that look like, though? I mean, is this a practice, as I hope and so many people hope, that really everyone can tap into in some way as part of this, like, life hacking or, or excuse me, life stacking practice? You know, is this something everyone can do? And if so, how does that happen sustainably?
1: Oh, it's such, it's such a complex question, but at the same time, it's also quite simple. I just laid simple. a massive
0: question at your, feet, at
1: your it's, feet. I can only just go on what the, the impressions have come to my mind. And I think part of the answer, just a very small part, but an important part of the answer, is seeing the real value of things. So we mentioned briefly about, very briefly about birch polypores. It's a, it's a fungi I love. And I make this thing called mangoes. I do all sorts of things with them. But I'll, t- I'll tell you about this guy that I met about 15 years ago now. He was about 70 then. And I met him for the first time. He was a friend of my mother. And she said, there's this guy where I live. And I know his wife. And uh, I, think, I think you might get on. Like, he, he likes to whittle wood and he does various things. Like, he, he doesn't really forage, but I just think you'd get on. So I went up to visit this guy. And... The first time i met him i walked into his garage which was his kind of workshop and he had all his whittling tools there and basically his house right he'd lived in the same place for 50 years and most of the furn- his furniture was made from driftwood that he he'd found on the beach and he had all these amazing animals and things whittled out of wood and i was looking around his his workshop and some of it was kind of you know dusty corners and uh I was I, i'm always attracted to dusty corners so i was looking in a dusty corner and you know it's 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 i guess this with with foraging it's the, the allure of the unknown you know but i was looking in this corner and i picked something up and he knew i foraged but he didn't know i was really big into into fungi and uh i was holding this this thing like a it was i don't know about 10 centimeters across kind of round kind of like a bit of leather and I'm just kind of curiously looking at this and, uh, okay. I got to say this actually made me cry. And when I tell people about this story, it makes me cry and I'll tell you why. So I'm going to have to be careful cause I don't want to cry. you
0: going to make but, me cry. But
1: anyway, So I'm holding up this thing and, and he said, oh yeah, you won't. He said, you won't be interested in that Fergus. He said, that's just a bit of mushroom. And I was like, what? Because I knew what it was, you know. I was saying, You mean? Oh, yeah. And he said, Yeah, I use it. I use it for my knives. And I was like, oh, Yeah, yeah. You mean this? You were using this as a razor strop. Like, because this is the other name for birch polypoise, razor strop. And like, I was blown away, right? And the, the, and the next thing, he said, Yeah, yeah, I've had that for 30 years. <laughs> that bit, you know. I've had that for thirty years.
0: Lasted thirty years.
1: Thirty years, right? So it's all it it impregnated. And if any, by the way, if anyone doesn't know what stropping is, perhaps it's not done so much now. But if you've like you've sharpened your knife, and I guess it goes back to the time of cutthroat razors, which are still used somewhere. But you've sharpened your knife these days probably on on a on a steel or a sharpening stone, and you've got it as sharp as possible. But you've still got those like fine fragments of metal there, right? So. What you would do you would just move back and forth either side of your knife on something like a leather belt that would be stropping but yeah you know, this fungus can be used for that so you know this one is in in his workshop it's impregnated by with all sorts of oils which whether he put them in there they just accumulate over over years yeah it's it's functioning like a wonderful strop and uh you know i said to him like that this is an incredibly common mushroom and like have you ever thought to get another and it's like, no, I don't need another one, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and when I thought, when I thought of all the beautiful things and in his house that he'd made over the years, and all the knives that he sharpened, all the all the knives that must have gone past, you know, over that mushroom and the beauty that they created, and the value that he had seen in that one mushroom. That's what made me cry. It was a sense that. I knew he was getting older i knew he wasn't well and i felt that that's a sense of valuing that's increasingly lost particularly you know in our, our, our the culture we live in everything's got built in i can never say this word what built in
0: uh, planned obsolescence
1: that's the one thank you planned obsolescence you know so this, this mushroom for him there was no planned obsolescence in there it would just it would go on and on and on, you know he probably would have used it for another fifty years had he been around. He died sadly about five years ago, but uh, yeah, I still have this mushroom. I still have it his you wife carried gave it, it to on me. you've carried on the legacy yeah. yeah, his wife gave it to me
0: it's a beautiful story, and it does follow close in parallel to this idea of foraging and self empowerment, and all of these things seem to build into some kind of worldview or way of moving through the world that seems so different to what we're doing now yet seems to resonate so deeply i know so many people that are pulled towards that like i said i made the reference of luddite somehow that seems to be part of it too it's like we need to forsake technology and maybe we don't you know maybe we can integrate all of those beautiful lessons still use the technology that's enabling us to have this conversation and that looks like something new
1: but 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 you know what it's when we use the term luddite it's often like apply to someone that just wants to turn the clock back that maybe they're a little bit stupid, you know. But you know, if you value a bit of mushroom as a strop and use it for 30 years, I think that for me is the epitome of intelligence, um and advanced thinking. Yes. You know? Yeah.
0: Re- value systems. I mean, that's something that I think a relationship with mushrooms, a relationship with foraging it starts to change all of those value systems and you know how value is how valuable is a forest versus you know the timber products quote unquote that come for it. I mean all of these things start to shift. Yeah when you engage in these practice. And something that comes up in all your stories is, you know, foraging is a practice of your own relationship with nature, but there's always other people involved with Fergus. So how is that integrated as part of your practice? When did you decide to become a teacher of this information? And what has that journey been like to be an educator and bring people into this world and this appreciation that's given you so much?
1: <laughs> I'm just laughing because you said this. <laughs> there's always other people involved. It's, it's very good when there's other people involved because, you know, me, myself, and I, it's, it's a dangerous situation. <laughs> and I just, it's a serious point because, I think sometimes it's important to be saved from yourself and actually other people can do that. And a, a lovely example I've got is that years ago, and she's still a very good friend, but she was my girlfriend at the time. And I say this in a sense that, you know how people put you on a pedestal. Okay, Fergus, oh, he's this forager. He's like really connected to nature. bloody bloody bloody. You know, I'm, I'm always, I like to knock <laughs> myself off this as, as much as possible. And, and in fact, I, I have no right to be there. Although I might be very creative and there's ways of being very creative, for example, um we'll come back to the girlfriend and how she saved me for myself in a minute. But if you look at a particular plant and you you break it down into its its component parts. So you're you're it's as I say, you could do root to tail, uh, nose to tail botanical foraging. So from the roots to the to the immature leaf bud or flower buds, the the leaf, the immature flower, the mature flower, the the immature seed, mature seed. And then you look at the bark and you look at sap and you you look at pollen, you look at all sorts of things, you know. So you can start to think of parts in all these parts, and then you can look at all the different ways that you could cook things or not. Um, It could be candying, it could be fermenting, it could be baking, braising, boiling, frying. And then you can look historically, you can look cross-culturally, right? Suddenly, There's a whole kaleidoscope of possibilities that opens up in front of you. However, here's the thing. This can become very dangerous because there... So with this girlfriend, she would always say to me, like, yeah, let's go for a walk, right? But let's just go for a walk. Like, you don't have to identify anything. You don't have to gather anything. You don't have to, like, work out what you... And I would always say to her, yeah, yeah, sure, no no problem, of course, we can do this. And I think we'd be going out about a year. And it was Boxing Day, as I recall, that kind of traditional time when, you know, people go out for long walks. And she said to me, like, you know, let's go for a a Christmas Boxing Day walk. And uh, can you not identify, go off on some tangent? Like, and I said, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. And then she really freaked out. She started shouting at me. She's like, okay, you always say that. But you never do that, and yeah, I suddenly like. No, it was a shock to me, like because she was really angry, and I said, "Okay, we're gonna do it. We're gonna go out. I'm not gonna identify anything. I'm not gonna, you know, think how a million ways you can work with this plant or fungus or whatever. We're gonna go for a walk." And we went for this walk, and I what I realized is, to a certain extent. It had become habitual for me to do these things, almost to a point of neurosis. And I couldn't let go of it. So I consciously just didn't do that. And I had such a good time. I was so relaxed. I was like, oh my goodness, I'd lost the ability to do that. Now, that was transformative for me because I realized that actually I was coming disconnected. And now it's great because i can consciously switch between these two things i can decide which which kind of way i want to be but it's just for those that do aspire to kind of work with the, the wild r- realm is that yeah don't always think in terms of what can i do with that plant you know i think this also it partly answers a, a, it partly answers a question you, uh, you brought up before about I think sustainability in, in the modern world is that you know part of it doesn't have to go hand in hand with it but what can go hand in hand with that idea of breaking everything down and looking at the infinite possibilities is that we can we can use and we can take it's like i emphasize the take it's like well hey what are, where's the reciprocal thing going on there so what's the the, the lesson for me there is okay where can I really embrace, when I look at cultures around the world that historically have lived in balance with the natural world, it's so much an em- emphasis on a reciprocal dialogue with the natural world and a give and a take, you know? So there's lots of things. I, I've really changed my practice over the years. Like a, a classic example. So I make a lot of rosehip syrup. I make a lot of rosehip soup. And what I used to do was what a lot of people probably do. They go and get a lot of rosehips. They might put them in a pan, simmer them, mash them up, extract the 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 extract, reduce it down, add some sugar, or then go and as I like to do is then cook, cook onions and beetroot and garlic and ginger and make a nice soup out of it. But I don't do it like that anymore. What I do now is I blend them all up raw, I extract the extract through a cloth, and then, you know, I like to just drink that as it is. But but that will become my stock base if I then want to make a soup, or it will become the, what I then add sugar and make a syrup. But the point is that the residue is viable seed because it hasn't been cooked. So a lot of the time, if you're unfortunate to be cycling along or walking along, you might see a seed bomb coming out of Fergus's car. As he's driving along, or <laughs> if you're walking,
0: a roasted bar. If,
1: if you're walking and there's uh, someone cycling past quickly and, and he's throwing some seeds, um, be careful because he might not have noticed you and they might hit you. No, but seriously, um, it's a really lovely thing to put back into the environment, you know? And it's not just, I mean, this is what, you know, this is what insects, not, not, not just insects, but like animals as well, like birds and. You think of all the forests that have been created from from squirrels and, and jays that have lost yeah. their that have lost their acorns. And you know, people have, lots of people have written about this. But you know, we can learn. We can learn from this kind of behaviour. And you know, I do wonder I I, I I do wonder whether, you know, in the back of a it, whether it's subconscious when a squirrel is harvesting lots of acorns and it's burying them. It's part of just in the DNA of that squirrel to think well, you know what? I know I'm going to forget some of those, but hey, it doesn't matter because in forgetting that, that's going to lead to an oak tree and that's going to feed all my descendants, you know, on and on and on. So it's, it's good to, to bring up that into one's kind of thinking, I think.
0: I like to think that for squirrels, it's entirely conscious and they are environmental stewards and they are trying to teach us something. And it seems like, yeah, you, I love it. You brought in that sustainability aspect because it seems like these concepts of reorienting your value systems, gaining these perspectives on natural systems and what's important, understanding reciprocity within that—that that, those are kind of key tenets of shifting your worldview. That then would make foraging something that's sustainable. You know, when when it's commonly brought up as kind of this two D. A debate of can everyone go out and forage wild food from a local area? It's like, well, they need these other pieces kind of built in. So do you find yourself doing that in your foraging courses when you share this with people that those end up being fundamental parts that go along with, yes, here's the plant, here's what you can do with it. Yes, here's the mushroom, here's what you can do with it. And these messages about value systems and re- reciprocity just flow all in between that as well.
1: Do you know, it's funny you said about like everyone foraging, because it's something, this is part, partly answers your question. It's like, it's something I, a little bit playfully, slightly teasing. I think of like foraging as a career path. You know, it's not something that's kind of obvious. And foraging is really, it's not something that's greatly valued in society. It's not like being a doctor or being a nurse or being, I don't know, a high-flying banker or something you know but i often say to people and i say yeah you know yeah because they say this they might say well you know what if everyone foraged and i kind of play with the absurdity of this and then i say to them like i say tell me about um a job that you really value and they might say doctor or so. and i say you know what i say imagine this scenario like and let's kind of go on a thought experiment like hey what if everyone became a doctor <laughs> what if everyone was a doctor? <laughs> like, yeah, because doctors are great, but what if everyone was a doctor? You know, there'd be no one to uh, do all the other aspects that we help us with all the other aspects that we need to, to lead lead our lives, you know? And of course, I can immediately see the absurdity of this. And of course, not everyone is going to be a forager. Or, right. you, you, you know, you don't have to... I must say, I'm, I'm always slightly embarrassed about the, the term forager because... The kind of cultures i really admire are ones where we don't have to self-consciously identify as foragers it's just going about your your life your business you know you're just getting some food it just happens to be over there in the woods it's not in the shops you know but um yeah i mean i don't think everyone is going to come to foraging but i think there are many good reasons to come to foraging and there are many plants that we can gather that are incredibly common and sometimes in urban environments, like even more common, I think you know, like rose hips example I gave, and elderflowers and you know some fungi, where yeah, we're just working with them, just you know for 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 me, foraging is so much about adding layers of meaning and value to things, so okay, this is slightly naive, but i I like to imagine like a time. When I think, right, I, I live in the southeast of England, and it's one of the most populated parts of the UK. And over the years, I've seen so many of the places that I used to both play as a child and forage in kind of early adulthood, just go under development, whether it be, you know, some out-of-town supermarket or some place for buying tools or whatever, or just housing yeah of course we need to live somewhere but you know it's it's rampant the development is rampant you know and a lot of these places they're just they're lost so in my not my naive mind is if there are people valuing picking elderflowers from this so-called bit of waste ground aka biodiversity rich paradise for plants insects animals you know if people were going to these places and getting a few things sustainably, you know, they would really want to stand up and be counted when this gets earmarked for development. And I, I admire the French in this regard, you know, the French really know how to protest against things, you know, and I like to think I'd, do. Like, I'd like to see a bit of that, you know, more in the UK. Um, yeah. But I do. Hey, do you know, I want to tell you something. This also made me cry. I like things that made me cry. I mention them, not because I'm, I'm just a blubber box, because I rarely cry. So, but wh- wh- where they do, it really touches at something really important. And when I was giving this example, I was thinking of this place, which is on the outskirts of Herm Bay, where my mother lives now, and where I grew up and lived for about 20 years. Now, about five years ago, and for a few years, it used to be a place that I used to go and get wonderful, like uh, Morello cherries, dwarf cherries, or Sour cherries, mugwort. Um, basically, it would just take the rest of this this podcast to list the amazing plants on there. There was so much, and then um, a few years ago, it was leveled completely leveled for some out of town development. And you know, oh, encroaching on this place. There's now a big supermarket. There's like a hardware place. There's and I thought, oh, you know, it's it's it, this is just oh, tragic because this was my best place to come for some of these things. And I, I was really depressed when I saw it. Literally, it was leveled and to, to like bare soil. And it, it was so bad that if I was driving past the area, I would literally take a detour so I didn't have to buy, go past it because I found it so. Yeah,
0: didn't have to see the carnage.
1: I didn't have to see the carnage. Anyway, I went there for the first time this June, right? This is three years later. The development didn't happen. What was there before, in terms of the plants, has come back three, four, fivefold. It's such riotous, glorious abundance. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. And it really gave me such a sense of hope for the future. It's like, okay human beings, including myself, because, you know, I'm no exception. I, like, a friend of mine, he wrote, he lived for a year without money. Uh, his friend called Mark Bohr, used to live where I live now. And he, he wrote a book called The Moneyless Man and The Moneyless Manifesto and various things. And he he, he took the example of a nail, right? Okay, I have a car. But if, if you just decide to live in a woods, and you, even if you build, like, a shack, right, and you decide, hey, it's easier if I just this this bit keeps falling down I'm gonna I gonna nail this bit with this this hey I'm even gonna use a rock but I'm gonna use this nail I'm gonna right? that nail implicates the whole industrial system right it implicates it so yeah I'm implicated like like we all are right I'm part of it and we have to take responsibility yeah. for that but no matter people like me in my our mindless thinking or, or just because we just don't know what to do just because it's become so overwhelming Even if we completely trash the place, like there's such a built-in inherent resilience in the natural world that it will come back and it will come back with a a vengeance. And I hope some humans will be around to enjoy this and nurture this and be stewards of this place. But uh, who knows? It's in the balance. It really is in the balance.
0: A powerful story, and I'm often impressed by that by how forceful life is. Uh, plants seem to embody that so well because you can cut them down to nothing, and they will just emerge. With, I mean, we have a, a tree and a bush we cut down in front of our house, and I mean, there's coming back. This bush has now come back and taken over half the house. Uh, so yeah, there's there's a lot of power there, and I do find a lot of hope there, and. Uh, I think that's really well said, and I hope that we can somehow integrate the best of that industrial society and somehow marry it to this understanding so, yeah, it doesn't end up in a dystopia where Fergus and a few others who, <laughs> who had turned away are living now in the reemerging plant life and natural systems that, that are coming back. But who knows? That might, that might be what it looks like. Well from massive concepts of hope and potential dystopia, you know, let's bring it down to the future for Fergus. W- what do you have coming up? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about these Amanita classes you've been doing, because I think there's a couple coming up. We're recording this in October, 2021. And then as much as you wanna talk about Amanita, feel free. I know that's many podcasts in itself, but yeah, tell us about some of those future plans and maybe some of those classes you're doing exploring the infamous Amanita Muscaria.
1: Yeah. Um... I think in terms of interest in wild food i think a lot of people they get the mushroom bug first you know they're really interested in that so i've, I've got a lot of fungi courses coming up and uh, i enjoyed that as well because yeah i like to do make lots of creative things to, to get people to taste just so i can really appreciate fungi on that level, but in, of course, all other levels that fungi can be appreciated on as well. So I've got, I've got those things coming up. And yeah, Amanita is a really good one because apart from the fact that, you know, I think, yeah, I don't know how the traffic lights are in the States, but, you know, here we have, it's like a reverse traffic light system. And I was looking for some today because it's, it's early October and I still haven't seen the first fly Garrick, but, you know, a traffic lights here, if it's green, it's like, go, go, go. a reverse system of that it's like once you see the red of the fly garrick you know even if you don't want to engage with fly garrick whether it be for food for medicine for spiritual practice you know that every other good edible is also going to be around at the same time you know so it's a really good sign but you know I, i like to talk about fly garrick because i think it's i i like to challenge people's assumptions i like to challenge taboos i like i like something that can really help you explore like the creative depths and that have such multi-layered stories to it. And there is no fungus like that more than Amanita muscaria, I think. So I like to work with this as food and medicine and other ways as well. So I've got a course coming up, yeah, this October with Courtney. It's our, we've done two in Ireland, been incredibly successful and great fun. And it's our first one in the UK. And yeah, I think this is something that I'll be working with for Courtney for many years' time. And I must say, Courtney, and if by the way, listen to episode 98 of The Mushroom Hour, because it's, it's <laughs> Courtney of Hips and horse, and it's a lovely episode. And if you listen to Courtney speaking, you will see how inspiring she is. So she's lovely to work with. And so I look forward to, to working with her again on this particular project of of celebrating all things Amanita and mushrooms generally, you know?
0: Well, I think it's pioneering work in some ways, especially in the Western world, there is that huge taboo surrounding Amani and Muscaria. And I'm sure a lot of listeners now hear the conflicting, oh, it's poisonous, but now we're learning that that's not strictly true. You know, this conversion of ibutanic acid into muscamol, or getting rid of both constituents through boiling renders it usable, but people still don't know all the particulars. And, you know, with your and Courtney's work, it's kind of putting this into practice and really pushing some of the boundaries of how can we use these things and also codifying the practices. You just brought up that interview we, uh, that she came on for The Mushroom Hour, and she really had a great sense of how, how many times to boil something. It's this classic, you know, once you do it enough, you know, and then it doesn't become a mystery anymore. The taboo is kind of erased because you know how to work with it. Uh, so yeah, I think there's some really pioneering work going on there that you guys are maybe inspiring a lot of other people to take another look at this mushroom. You know, what first inspired you to have a class about it? Or maybe it just starts with, how long ago did you start challenging that taboo? And what brought Amanita Muscaria kind of into that realm of something you could actually work with?
1: Do you know, it it wasn't, working with Amanita Muscaria had nothing to do initially with with wanting to challenge taboos. It was the fact that I, I went to Italy Years ago, years and years ago now, and I bought some Amanita cesarea. I don't know if you know that one, Caesar's mushroom. Now, yeah. that's a gourmet Amanita, and it's a gourmet red Amanita. So naively, and this was only after a couple of years of, of you know, maybe it was a couple of years after you know, reluctantly picking those Belita sedulus and discovering they were delicious, you know. But yeah, these were really delicious. And uh, naively, I came back to the UK thinking, hey, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and look for some Caesars mushrooms because, yeah, they're pretty easy to identify, you know. Um, they're these kind of red mushrooms growing out of this sack. And, uh, but they don't grow here. You know, They're actually, in recent years, there are some, I'm not sure if they're totally verified reports, but generally it doesn't grow here. But I was aware of Amanita muscaria. So I gathered Amanita muscaria, Again, in my naivety, not really knowing too much about it, I I, I did a bit of cursory re- research. You know, of course, all the books said it was poisonous. There was a few things to say that, well, hey, you know, but these folk eat it and they just boil the mushroom and whatever.
0: <laughs> and uh, right, right, those whispers, yeah,
1: those those whispers, and and I did. I I boiled whole mushrooms and. I, I, the, the caveat here is there is a much more systematic process than I'm describing here. And I think if people want to do this, they, they really need to look at the, a more systematic kind of process. And I, I say that where they can find one. But I, I did a bit of kind of boiling of whole mushrooms and, you know, I'd eat a few and they were really delicious, you know. And I didn't experience any adverse effects. And and then I left that for for quite a few years. And then I read... That wonderful article by um, David Aurora and William Rubel which was I'm sure you know it it's what was it something like Amanita muscaria I can't remember the title now but it was something about its use in field guide determinations of edibility and basically they were what they were taking was how this iconic mushroom and for very many reasons why it's the iconic mushroom you know, from fairy stories that we've, we've all grown up, you know, we probably knew about before we even knew what a mushroom was. We know about yeah. Amit Muscara on some level, which also makes it exciting. But he talks about this, and then he talks about, you know, how it's been used as food and medicine around the world. And and then they, they put down a procedure for safely detoxing the mushroom, you know, based on the best practice of all the different ways that they're observing, you know. So that was the first time I'd seen a paper with people that I respected because I I was aware of them before, you know. Certainly, David Aurora. and so that really encouraged me to take it much further. Yeah, but I mean, there, there was something I I want to bring because I keep meaning to email David about this because I, I just happen to have this here, and uh, listeners won't know that we're looking at each other, but I, someone was asking me at a, about a mushroom earlier. So I was I was looking in this book, it's called the The Merck Index, which is wonderful. Yeah. And it's uh it's an encyclopedia of chemicals, drugs and botanicals. And it's my go-to for looking up various things. And and I had it as my bedside reading for a for a number of years. And I remember flicking through it one night and I got to the, the to the, the M and and I got to like Musk and we're we're a, as you know and some people might know the Fly Garrett contains uh, muscomol that breaks down, or is then converted to ibotenic acid. Is that the right order? Or oh, after? I think it's that order. I
0: think it's ibotenic acid into muscomol
1: Oh yeah, there you go. But anyway, I was under the musk section, and in fact, the entry is just above muscomol and it says like muscarine, and it's not water soluble, and it's an am- amino acid, and it's toxic, and it's in amanita muscaria, <laughs> and it's like okay. There's this method that they've documented and there's this boiling and it's leaching out the water-soluble toxins. And many, many people have followed this, including me, without any adverse consequences. But hey, what's this going on in here, this zone? And it's not water-soluble and it's toxic, but it's destroyed at 190 degrees Celsius. It starts to break down. So a refinement for me here is, is particularly like on the course with Courtney, because we make we make um, fly garrick hummus. We make fly ice cream. We do all sorts of stuff. And when I'm working with the mushroom in bulk, not only do I do it in multiple changes of water, more than I would do so for myself and sliced up, but I also, I pack it in kind of greased foil in, in bulk after all these boilings, and then I bake it at 220 degrees for an hour, right? So it's been so detoxed. Bizarrely, it still has a great flavor, but also at that point, it becomes a vehicle for other flavors that you want to put in there. Or it becomes, yeah, a, a structural building block for other things like hummus. But a question I've, I've often been meaning over the years to, to ask David is, yeah, what his thoughts on that are. And I don't know, because I, you know, these things, we have ideas that we're going to do stuff and I just never get around to it. So uh, <laughs> my 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 thought is that, that that the musca zone is probably in, amanita muscaria in such a small quantity, that it's not inimical to to health, you know, but I don't know. Yeah. So, I think it's very important when you're working, particularly with members of the public, you you know, got to be absolutely spot on with um, the safety of what you're you're serving.
0: Absolutely, I thought you were brave to have an amanita muscaria public course where you were working with people, but thankfully yeah you've done your research and it always helps to go to that nth degree of making sure everything's safe and but yeah like i said i thought that was a a very brave decision what do you think Do the people that were at the course just gung-ho and ready to dive into amanita or, or did it take some convincing <laughs> i guess well, if they signed up for an amanita course they should be ready for it
1: do you know do you know the funny thing is it's like um so you know we're telling them that the way to detox it and that it's all going to be safe. And, but I said, you know, the thing is, I've been taking fly agaric, and this is what I was saying to him, about four or five grams a day of dried, undetoxed fly agaric in order to treat an insomnia condition, which I have. So I'm eating it daily, undetoxed, probably about a cap's worth. And I don't have any adverse strange symptoms. Like, you know, I don't even have any strange dreams. It just it just helps me in, in the evening to get to sleep. And then I kind of joke, hey, you know, I'm not some mad guy, and usually I roll my eyes and kind of twitch around a little bit. <laughs> you know. But
0: <laughs> Yeah, everything's fine. <laughs> but
1: you know, everything everything's fine here, you know. So and and we're talking about eating detox ones, so there's there's kind of that the risk of, of anything yeah. untoward is, is really not very likely.
0: Well, it's really interesting. That that whole course was really a showcase, I think, of the creativity, of the exploration that's possible. And uh, yeah, it's just really exciting. So where can people find your work, your courses? Because I'm sure people listening, you know, whether they're in the UK or not, probably want to go out and hang out in the woods with Fergus. So where can people connect with you and your work?
1: Well, what I really love is when I'm just like stumbling out of the hedge, and I meet someone, and they say, "Hey, what are you doing?" That's a good way of meeting me. <laughs> um,
0: go find him I've, in the hedge.
1: Yeah, but other than that, yeah, I've got a website, Fergus the Forager. Yeah, these kind of places, and now people can find me on the Mushroom Hour podcast, which is exciting. Somewhere where they wouldn't have been able to find me before. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you have a fantastic Instagram, and people should go follow you on Instagram. Go to the website. Uh, sign up for the classes because I think yeah you bring a certain air like a ton of humor, a ton of creativity to this. And you've got this aesthetic that I love that I think is no better embodied than kind of your whole cottage. And you can correct me if you know I, I don't know. I maybe this is a little creepy. I'm like, I know your whole I know your whole <laughs> life. No, but I think it's embodied in this cottage and you brought out in one of your videos this recipe book that looked like it was probably owned or written by Gandalf, the wizard. You know, it's like this woodland bound recipe book. Uh, I love that kind of stuff.
1: I love that kind of stuff. And uh, I'm actually looking at it now. Yeah, that was a, <laughs> that was a lovely project called the Forage Book Project. That, uh, Yeah, gosh, that was back in 2013. And uh, I'd been making paper out of mushrooms for an, a number of years and particularly birch polypore. And uh, this guy, he emailed me and uh, he was, he was, I think about nineteen, twenty, just finished art college. He was kind of really kind of enthusiastic and like many emails I get. And uh, he said, oh, you know, can I come along and be your apprentice and blah, 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 blah. And often, you know, often that doesn't work out because I find it very hard to kind of organize, to kind of meet people sometimes because I don't always know what I'm going to be doing. But he said, like, I've just finished his fine art degree and I, I make like wild pigments and stuff. And, and I emailed him back immediately and I didn't know him at all. And I said, hey, I like what you're doing. We should write a book together. <laughs> that, that was it. Was like, hey, what am <laughs> hey, I doing? I don't, I don't even know this guy. But it would turned out to be a really good thing because he is so organized, so driven to kind of get things done. So we collaborated over a couple of years, creating this guide. And I could give you this link that you could put in. Do you have show notes for these things? Absolutely. This, we so need this, that link. This book, I don't know how many pages it is. It's, I think it's about maybe 100 pages. It's all made out of birch polypore. And it, it's a guide to plants, fungi, and seaweeds and with a few recipes. And that's probably about half of the book. But the other part, which I really love, it's, and I like to think of this, You know, we talk about reference books, but this is like a self-reference book. It's a self-referential book. It's the ultimate self-referential book because it's a a book that describes how to make itself. So the first half is like, well, how do you make mushroom paper? How do you size the paper so the ink doesn't run? How do you craft botanical pigments? You know, how do you do all these things? Uh, So I love that. I love that.
0: The ultimate self-referential book—a book about how to make the book.
1: Sometimes people say to me, "Well, have you have, you have you written a book, Fergus?" And uh, and I say, "You know what? I've 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 drafted notes on about twenty books I'd like to write." And then I look outside the window, and it looks so much more fun out there. Uh, <laughs> you know? But but I think if you're gonna if you're gonna make any book, you know, it's got to be fun. So J- James James Wood, who I I made that with, like, yeah, thanks, James. That was immense fun, and. And also, yeah, I want to thank him because I got quite unwell with insomnia during the making of that book. And and he took on a lot of the the hard graft and getting it done. So nice one, James.
0: Well, I guess then, you know, I want to keep hearing stories. And that's why I said people should go to your Instagram channel. It's a lot of fun. And you get to follow along in the forest. And you just answer one of my big questions is when are we going to get the book? But you've already written a book. And, oh, yeah, and I totally gonna, s- get it.
1: What, what I was going to say, there's only one copy of that, but it's it's digitized online. So I can send you a link and you can see the whole book. You can read the whole book.
0: Terrific. Well, and I guess then the Merck Index is one you've given us. Is there any, maybe one more go-to, because it sounds like a lot of this was kind of taught through your own experience, but you know, even in that, I'm sure there were reference books. So is there any for you that stands out as, hey, if you're in the UK, this is a great wild plant or or wild mushroom book to have?
1: Oh, you know, there's so many. But, you know, I still come back to one that I I started to use. It was one of the first Wild Food books I get and got, and I don't know whether it's just, because often the the first thing we encounter is we're attached to it, you know. But it's Wild Food by Roger Phillips. And I must stress, it's not the new edition. It's the old edition. Look for a second-hand copy of the old edition. And what I really love about that book is... Okay. Books that I like are ones that make me want to put down the book and get outside. And so so I think the thing about Roger Phillips, which I, I know you've you've interviewed um, in one of the, the podcasts. It's a lovely interview, that, by the way. But yeah, photography is his thing as well, apart from the love of many plants. And he's, he writes not just about wild food, but yeah, the photography just inspires you to get out and want to make the the thing that he's made, you know so i think that's a good book that's a really good book
0: wild food by roger phillips and again i'm kind of blown away by that Merck index i think there's going to be a lot of people listening that are into kind of biochemistry and all that that are really going to enjoy
1: oh man you could to- you, that could, one. you could totally geek out on that it's wonderful yeah, yeah,
0: yeah i think that's i think that's definitely going to be added as a must-have to our own library here well then i'll have you wrap things up with the three questions that i like to ask all my guests and the first one is often the most difficult And you've already given us a bunch of beautiful fun playful mushrooms to work with but maybe give us a mushroom or fungus that you love and why and this can be just the mushroom you saw when you were out this morning that comes to mind Uh, and you can give us more than one i don't want to restrict it but a mushroom or fungus you love and why
1: okay so this is one that i picked this morning and you know because there's always so much to remember in terms of foraging. It's often just, hey, just go for the, 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 the simplest thing that you can, you can remember. And that right. is, okay, it's an underdog because it's not that valued as a food. And that's perhaps you're in China. And that is the wonderful stinkhorn mushroom. Phallus impudicus, which at the early stage is also referred to as witch's eggs. I actually have one right here.
0: <laughs> and, of course you do.
1: Yeah. The, the reason I love this is because, and I guess this goes back to playfulness, is you can have a lot of fun with this. So these are, these are always growing around autumn, late autumn, Halloween, right? So if you get one of these, and this is you know, most fungi, if you kind of pick them, right, they're not going to carry on growing. But you pick these when they're in the egg stage, where it's about the size of a golf ball. You can have ludicrous fun. You can put it on people's doorsteps. (laughs) You can put it in people's flower pots. You can put it on all sorts of places. And within a couple of days, even within 24 hours, this great, huge, erect, fungal penis will (laughs) erupt out of this egg with this stinking penis-like head on the top. And it's just endlessly fascinating. And it just... It's, we were talking about Courtney earlier, and and I was chasing around an island the other the other week, running after her with a dog stink horn, and she was saying, "Oh, why do you have to chase me with that? You're being such a boy." And I was like, "Yeah, but isn't it just amazing that how the fungi are so clever that they can mimic the smell of dog shit, you know, to attract the flies? Isn't that incredible?"
0: <laughs> um, Come spell it. Come spell it.
1: <laughs> yeah. So so that that is. really lovely mushroom and the other thing i love to do at halloween is make a soup from it because if at this egg stage you take out the immature head inside and you you cut off the crust the you cut a section out of the top it looks exactly like an eyeball so what you can do is you can marinate them in a bit of stock with some chili in various things overnight get some spicy flavors in there. Then you can make something like a really nice porcini consomme. And then you can cook the eyeballs in the consomme, the, the stinkhorn eyeballs in the consomme and they float around, you know, some sink, some are floating around and then you just scoop them out. And then you go, ha ha ha. Eyeball soup, anybody? <laughs> yeah. So I think that's, that's one of my favorite ones. And, uh, and also, you know, it lends itself to so many creative things. So we, I talked a little bit about mushroom paper and making that book. But, but quite a few years ago, I used the gel from this mushroom to make masks. So I don't know if you've ever made paper mache masks you might, or used paper mache You might have done as a child. I used to do it yeah. as a child. So we used to get newspaper. Okay, in this case, substitute newspaper for birch polypore paper. But then we would use this kind of basic kind of gummy glue to so like layer like the paper. Okay, forget that. You can just use the gel inside the stinkhorn and then you can layer that and then you can make your, your paper mache mushroom mask. And how fun is that? Your Halloween paper mache That's mushroom. Wild. Which you, you can, I've never done this. You can make your Halloween paper, your Halloween birch polypore and stinkhorn mask while you're serving up your, your eyeball soup. There you go. (laughs) Wild food goals.
0: Halloween sorted. Sorted. (laughs) Yeah, well, and I think that example epitomizes kind of the creativity and what you're creating with wild food that really, again, inspires so many of us. You know, you're going to make us see certain mushrooms and fungi in a whole other light and what the possibilities are. So I I love, I love that choice. I love that example. And then the second question then is a much bigger question, but I have a feeling you'll have something fun for us or something insightful, and that is what this relationship that you've developed with these organisms has given to you. Now, you could go more broadly and say the relationship with wild food and foraging, but I think you've really touched on that. So specifically, you know, even though they inspired anger at first, these mushrooms that you eventually fell in love with, you know, what has that relationship with that whole kingdom or queendom of organisms given to you or brought to your life yeah
1: this is this is where i say in a really deadpan voice athlete's foot candida
0: <laughs> <laughs> the harsh reality it's yeah, not all good
1: that's no, not all good um yeah i, th- I think i think the, the example of the oh no um, i as we're speaking i've just split the egg and it's all the goo is just dripping out all over the place um, oh, no! Uh, yeah, and the funny thing is, right, is I actually boiled this one, and so the goo is actually liquid, whereas before, it, it's not. Anyway, it's now all over the place. But what I would say... <laughs> disaster. I, but look, no, no. Out of disaster, there is triumph, because I've got a hogweed burn from the sap of hogweed, and actually, the gel of, the gel of, of this mushroom is pretty much like aloe vera or carrageenan like the extract from carrageen so it's quite soothing on the skin so i'm just rubbing it in now i'll clean it off my bed sheets later because it looks like something else and i don't want people to think it's that and i'm in bed at the moment because it's quite cold so i thought for this interview i'd come in bed so anyway, i've got to clear that up
0: <laughs> triumph has emerged but, we but won't try, ask any more questions
1: don't ask any more questions but i would say i think what fungi have done is they yeah this is the thing you know i it was partly tongue in cheek but it 's true. I, I talk about the, the stinkhorn and the you know the dog stinkhorn smelling of shit, but you know the amount of creativity that involved in the solution like that that is a solution to a problem you know hey i 've got all these spores. I need them to get around somewhere. Hey, flies would be a good idea. How do I track the flies? Hey, I know what i 'm going to smell of shit, and then they'll come so <laughs> i think I think just. Working with fungi is when you look at how inherently creative they are; they can just stimulate your own creativity. So they have certainly mm. allowed me to explore my own creativity, whether it be in cooking, whether it be in other kind of craft work. But also, and I think it's much more easier for people to grasp this these days, with you know talk of the wood wide web and everything. It's just like how fundamentally important fungi to our very existence you know so i think a big mush love to the fungi to the mushrooms you know and you know we we have we haven't met but you know i can really say i love you because you are really bringing people to a deep appreciation of this magical kingdom you know and i think that's so important because as we all know like and I think these days, because I was just, I saw this picture the other day, like the other week. It's that a classic surrealist thing. Was it the, like, this is not a pipe. Do you know that picture? It's a, I think it was by René Marguerite or something. It's just like, this is not a pipe. And it's the point that, well, it's not a pipe because it's, first of all, it's a drawing of a pipe, but it's also, a drawing. Yeah. It's, but a pipe on its own doesn't exist. It can't exist without everything else. And like the fungi, although they're important in their own right, you know, the fungi can't exist without the trees. The fungi, the trees can't exist without the, the, the air, the soil. And, you know, all these things we need to nurture, we need to, we need to nourish, we need to look after, you know. So, yeah, mush love. <laughs>
0: fungi and mushrooms definitely teach us all those things. And I'm humbled by you saying that this whole project of showcasing amazing people like you who have inspired me was really to hope to do that to kind of create this to create this space where people would come and get endlessly inspired and you know people are going to hear fergus and suddenly follow your journey probably email you to be their your apprentice and and all that and that's all the beautiful outcomes that that i hoped happen uh, but i love how you just kind of related this, I think it's a hermetic law. Quickly, I'm getting into depths of things I don't know about. But this idea of correspondence, whereby communing with a creative organism that's also an organism that seems to bind together so many things, kind of instills those qualities in ourself. And I think you can't get away from that. I think for so many people, it does that. Uh, Well, then the final question is huge. And again, we've kind of talked about it in bits and pieces, but just as more people... Develop deeper relationships with mushrooms and fungi. How do you hope that changes things for the better? Uh, And yeah, we've talked about value systems and centralized authority, these big topics about society. But how do you hope that this relationship we're talking about starts to shift some of that in a positive direction?
1: I just think that given the unique, all encompassing realm that fungi is and all its kind of multifaceted ways of operating in the world i just hope that through a a more of appreciation of that and appreciation of the natural world more generally that we can just keep those and come to value like traditional cultures and ways of relating to the world much more than we have done you know, I I I think, of course, you know, I I live in Great Britain. We were, you know, one of the arch um, colonial power, powers. You know, are uh, really not valuing kind of native cultures and native traditions. So there there is so much still to be valued and learnt from from kind of these these cultures. And I I think this is a gateway to that. And and in in what I do, in a very small way, I just like to think that. You know, I think of all my ancestors going back and back and back and back. And and for the vast majority of all my ancestors going back through time, wild food and eating wild food would be normal. That was the normal thing to do. It's only in a historical blink of an eye that for some people it's a bit strange, maybe even disgusting or kind of weird. But it, it doesn't have to be. And if we embrace it and embrace some of the values that people... And and the reason it was normal for hundreds of thousands of years because it was inherently sustainable, because within the practice of feeding ourselves, we were much more in a reciprocal relationship with the natural world. So I, I hope in my small way that I can just continue giving value to the long, long tradition of wild food use, maybe give it a contemporary twist, maybe develop some new traditions and see it going into the distant, distant future, something like that.
0: Well, and it feels like one of the great hopes is that we can bring all that knowledge that's been lost along with it, reciprocity, this understanding of homeostasis with our environment, all that seems to get encapsulated in foraging. And as educators like yourself bring that into the modern time, that feels like the only hope if we're gonna somehow integrate or or adjust, evolve, our modern society into something that can actually sustain it's going to take all of that being brought forward so i'm always grateful to to way showers like yourself for bringing yeah that i forward.
1: I, I, th- I think in keeping ideas and knowledge of wild food alive you are keeping it as a viable possibility for people it's like you know if people don't know it's not an option but so if you keep that knowledge alive it, it's right. a viable option for people to explore you know
0: Yeah, why can't that be a valid option? Why can't we just exist, go forage for wild foods? You know, we don't need to pay taxes. We don't need to necessarily answer to anyone. (laughs) We could just be in an idyllic pastoral society, hunting for foods and dancing and making love and singing and playing music. I mean, what's wrong with that?
1: (laughs) What's wrong with that? Nothing. I'll see you there. We just have to
0: know it's possible.
1: I'll see you on the other side (laughs) of that fire, singing and dancing.
0: I love it well fergus thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us so much information telling us amazing stories dealing with some massive issues that's kind of my thing as i throw these questions that are like so big and you've been able to take those and artfully kind of give us some great answers so thank you so much for coming on the show it's really an honor
1: oh it's been an absolute delight and thank you for your excellent mushroom hour podcast i recommend it to everybody.